Hello, welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman. I'm here with my friend in Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masacha Ketubot, daf page, page 80. Well, yesterday we had an interesting Mishnah about what happens when a husband has uh, expenses, uh, you know, sort of maintain um, what his wife's property um, balanced against what he eats or, con- you know, consumes off of that property. And the Gemara, you know, says that basically he just has to eat, you know, sort of if he eats something off of it, it balances off whatever he puts into it. In other words, we don't do it exactly that it has to be equal. So the Gemara starts off by asking a question, which kama kima? Like, in other words, how much is considered to be a small amount of eating that still qualifies as having eaten? I'm a Raviasi. Raviasi says, achat. right, even one dry fig. Right, as long as he eats it nicely, like if he enjoyed anything off of you know that produce, then that's like good enough. If he got any value or benefit off of the property, Amar Rabbi Abba, Rabbi Abba says Amar Beit Rav says in this name of the school of Rav, Afilu even a cluster of dates that are stuck together. By Rabbi Rabbi asks de Tamari Mai. Right, if one ate dough made of dates, right. Is that considered to be nice? It's like eating dough. I mean, I love to eat dough. So for me, that would be <laughs> bichubat. Teku, they're not sure. So in other words, I think what's interesting, the Gemara is trying to say is, is that if you want to say it's like he ate something good and important off of it, what is that considered? You know, and so I think they're struggling with, there's all different types of things you can make off of the produce of food. Is it just eating the food itself? Is it the dough that before it's baked? It, it, it makes sense as a question. Um, and then... The Gemara goes on to say, right? What if he didn't eat it in a dignified manner? Now, again, they don't explain what, you know, is exactly, right? So Ula said, two Amorayim and Eretz Yisrael disagree about this, right? So one said he has to eat an amount of an Isar. One says he has to eat an amount of a Dinar. So in other words, it's either... You eat something bekavod, and then it can be a very small amount. Or you have to eat, if it's not bekavod, a certain monetary amount, either of an isar or dinar. Amri dinayi de pumpedita. So the judges of pumpedita say, Avid Rav Yehuda ovda Rav Yehuda took action in a, it, with a case that had sold a bundle of branches. In other words, a husband took branches from his wife's property and he fed them to his animal, Right. And Rav Yehuda basically treated this as he got good, like this was consuming something off her property. He didn't eat it directly, but his animals ate it. Rav Yehuda Latame, so what's the, his reasoning? To Amar Rav Yehuda, because Rav Yehuda says, Achla orla that if somebody owns a plot of land, right, takes possession of a plot of land and takes, even eats produce of trees that were forbidden to him. In other words, these were trees you couldn't eat, right? Either because it was Orla, right? Remember, Orla is a fruit tree during the first three years of planting, or Shvi, which is a Shemitah year, or Kilayim, which is, you know, diverse kinds, uh, things that are mixed together. But just by the act of eating, it shows that you took permission, you know, you took possession of that land. So the idea here is being like, yes, even though he didn't eat it directly, he showed some possession of that by feeding it to his animals. So I just think it's a very interesting passage that again shows there's a lot of different ways to eat things and it can all mean a lot of different things. And I think like as much as the Gemara, you know, the Mishnah sort of is very clear cut about this, 
here comes along the Gemara and is like, whoa, none of this is clear cut. Like, we don't know what you mean, Mishnah, by saying that we consume things. I think it's kind of a funny sidestep here, right? Like, I mean, it's that is so what the Talmudic. Does. Like, in a way, it's like a classic right. Talmudic passage, right? Like, it's right. so Talmudic. Like, really, like let's not talk about what we're really you talking made a about. Not bikabod. It costs this amount of money, not this. What if you fed it to your animals? There's something so Talmudic about this, this passage. But also, it's like so far removed. It's its own conversation, right? It's its own, like what I call a pop-up window. That's a top, you know, a sidebar topic that's not really connected to the most, the the thrust of the Mishnah. Anyway, I'm gonna pick up. Um, where am I? I'm uh, somewhere in the middle of Amud Aleph. And we are going back to husbands and wives and shared property, own, you know, shared ownership. Ibailahu, we have a case that's brought before the sages. So we have a husband who has sharecroppers. Okay, Mahu. So what happens when the sh- the husband hired sharecroppers to work the land that really belonged to the wife? Now, just to refresh everybody's memory. A sharecropper is somebody who's basically like a tenant farmer, and what they do is they they till the land, let's say, and they keep the produce. the The vast majority of the produce, at least hopefully, goes to themselves, meaning they work the land and they get the benefit. But some portion of it goes to the owner of the land in payment for the right to work the land, and the owner gets the benefit of the fact that the land is being worked, and they get some of the produce, and the tenant is getting the benefit of being able to not to own land, but to be able to have the produce. For food and and to or and or to sell, so what happens here? Meaning, what what's the halacha in the case of, again, a husband who's hired sharecroppers to work his wife's property instead of himself doing it? Adata de baal nachit baal So the question is, does the sharecropper work the land as if like he's he's doing it for the husband? So then, let's say the husband would leave, then the sharecroppers would also leave, meaning if the husband leaves, we're talking about a divorce. But the question is, the sharecroppers also, the tenant farmers who are living, working the land, do they leave if the husband would divorce the wife? Or are they, or, you know, and then they wouldn't get the profits of the land anyway, right? Um, or are they really connected to the land? And then it doesn't matter who owns it, but they're working the land, and whoever owns it will get some portion of their of their labor, and they themselves get to keep whatever it is, right? Um, so that's the question, right? Is it is it contingent on who hires them, or is it contingent on the owner of the land itself because because they're working the land? Doesn't even like the doesn't even like the whole discussion. So he says, how is that different from the case of somebody who goes into the into one person A goes into person B's field and then plants it right, like meaning and just works the land without any without any um without any permission, right? Like you could just. I think this is like a kind of a hard scenario to imagine, except for that if you're not talking about actual like fields of of wheat or something, you know, just to you know plant your small tomato plants. Like I can imagine somebody doing that. Why they're doing it? I guess maybe they don't have land of their own, right? In any case, the point is that in that kind of situation, what do you do? You would have 
um, it says, Shamin lo viado al Meaning, the idea is that you would evaluate how much the expenses are, how much he's benefiting to the land, and who where where you have a surplus, right? Meaning, is land improvement to the greater number, or is the expenditure the greater number? And in which case, right, he's always going to get the smaller amount, whether it's going to be the expenses or it's going to be the amount that he's enhanced the property, right? So, so Rav Bar Chanan wants to say that the sharecroppers would be like, you know, unauthorized squatters or or workers of the, somebody's garden or somebody's land. Why not treat them that way that they don't have permission? I, of course, I have a, you know, a puzzle. I, I find this a puzzling statement to begin with because a sharecropper and the owner have an agreement, right? Like, so the, to say that they are in the same situation as somebody who doesn't have an agreement feels a little difficult to me. And the Gemara answers, Hatam, Lega Enis Tatarach. And the answer is, well, if you've got, uh, you know, somebody who just enters another person's land and starts working the land with no permission, then the bottom line is that you don't have anybody else who's going to be working that land. So then, of course, whoever is um, investing in it, their time, their effort, whatever, should be compensated for it. Right. But if you're talking about a husband who himself would be otherwise working the land, except we just happened to hire people to do it instead, the sharecroppers are being his shlichim, right, his emissaries, so to speak, well, then surely they are entitled to re- remain on the land as long as he is there because that's the dynamic, meaning there is a role, a relationship between husband and sharecroppers. Um, so then the Gemara wants to know, the Gemara kind of like leaves aside, this was a sidebar, we don't like the question, okay, now we like the question again, let's try to answer the question. My Havela, what was the original Answer. What was the answer to the original question? Amrav Huna Bereid Rav Yehoshua Chazenan. Rav Huna, the son of Rav Yehoshua, says, "Well, we're going to look. At, we're going to let's check it out. Let's examine. We'll look and see what's going on." Ibaal Aris Ku Baal So what happens if the husband is the sharecropper himself? Right, and he knows what to do to work the land and so on. He knows how to work it. He knows the whatever he's supposed to be doing with the crops, right? And then the husband divorces, he leaves the land. Then all the other guys would also leave, um, meaning they. then he is with them and they are really, it's essentially a team and he just has some other people joining him to get some of the work done. But if the husband himself is not a sharecropper, so then the land itself is really ready for the sharecroppers, meaning the husband isn't, already engaged in it and they're just kind of helping him do more faster and there then you know the wife if they get divorced the wife is going to need somebody to come and work the land she's going to need those sharecroppers so then they're not regarded as acting as the you know on behalf of or helpers of the husband rather they're connected to the land and the need the land's need for it to be worked um okay that's that's the story of the sharecroppers. I think the part that's most interesting here, of course, is the fact that the Gemara is, and we would expect this, recognizing all different kinds of ownership of the very land that needs to be worked. You know, if we're talking again, we're talking about the wife who owns the land and the husband's getting the payroll, husband's getting the produce off the land. What happens when he farms it out, literally farms it out, um, and, and whether he's entitled to those workers' work what happens to the workers? Now we've got like, it's like a whole other level of um, 
of involvement when it comes to the land, right? We've got the wife who owns it, the husband who's got the produce off of it, and now the sharecroppers who are in their own separate category them this much attention. So I'm actually surprised this case is not its own mission out. Like, it's kind of funny. It comes up in the Gemara because it's a little bit of an obvious case. Unless sharecropping wasn't so popular in the times of the Mishnah. But anyhow, we'll get, we're back to the Mishnah I'm going to go to, which is a rather long Mishnah. Uh, we're back to Yavamos in a way. <laughs> so, all right. So I'm going to move on to this Mishnah here that's going to take us back to Masachet Yavamos. And it reads as follows. Shomer Yavam Shinaflu Lat Nechassim. So you have a widow, right? Or husband dies. She's waiting basically for the brother, for the Yavam to, you know, marry her or do Chalitza, right? Um, and at that same time, she inherits some property, right? So even though there is this like sort of relationship between her and the Yavam, right? Between the Yavam and the Yavam, she still owns that property and she can do what she wants with it. She can sell it. She can keep it. Both Beit Hel and Beit Shammai agree with that. Meta, let's say she dies. What happens to her property, right? In other words, what happens to all of this Yusperuch property? Because in other words, she kind, again, there is this relationship that she has with the Avam, but it wasn't, you know, solidified yet into full Yibum, which is marriage, or they didn't do Chalitza in case, you know, there was no relationship at all. So Beit Shammai says, okay, she wasn't remarried yet, right? So the property basically would get divided between the husband's and her, you know, like the brothers or the her father's heirs. Like, in other words, they sort of recognized she was in this middle status, right? And, you know, therefore, we're going to give some of it to the, hus- the husband's property, some of it back to her father's, okay? Beit Hillel says something different. The property sort of keeps its ownership status. And the ketubah takes, you know, take, you know, is in the husband's heirs because the husband was responsible for its payment. So any property that she inherited, that's basically going to go to her father's family, because presumably that's who she inherited from, was from her father. Now, let's say, right, the deceased brother left money as part of his estate. Right? So that land, you know, can basically... Uh, you know, and, and could have been used as like a lien on her ketubah, right? So you can buy, uh, you know, the Yavam basically can buy karka with it, and he can get produce from it. Let's say that deceased brother, right, left produce that was detached from the ground, right? Again, you actual land with it, and he can eat payroll. So in other words, if the brother leaves her money, the Avam is entitled to that property already. Okay. Um, um, so let's say we have produce that's still attached to the ground. So you see how much they're actually worth, right? 
and how much is how much the land is worth sorry how much the land is worth with produce how much it's worth without produce bahamutar and the difference you'll kach baham karka you can acquire you know buy property with that bahu ochel peyrot bahachamim omrim peyrot at mechubarim bakarka shalom any produce that's still attached to the land is still owned by the yavam so you can't actually buy land with it but the yavam can basically eat it but if it's detached, right, and it wasn't her, her ketubah or anything like that, whoever takes possession of it first basically acquires it. If the Avam took possession of the property first, he has it. She acquired it first, then you can buy land with it, and he eats the payroll. Right? Let's say the Avam marries her. Then she's like a regular wife, right? It's just that her ketuba comes from the property of the first husband, and that we saw in Masachat Yavamot. So the, therefore, the Avam cannot say to her, your marriage contract is placed on the table, meaning he can't put aside a designated amount of money for his payment. Rather, it has to come out. The first husband's property is mortgaged against her marriage contract, as long as they're not, you know, they don't end up getting divorced. Also, in, in any case, a man is not allowed to say, here's the money for your ketubah. In other words, the ketubah really needs to come from his property. He's not allowed to set aside 200 Susan and say that's going to be for your ketubah. Uh, Grace Shah, okay. Let's say the Avam divorces her after performing Yibum. She only gets her ketubah and she doesn't get any other part of her first husband's property. Let's say he remarries her. She's like all, all women. Then she only has her regular marriage contract, which would be from the second husband. So, I don't know. Interesting that it appears here and not in Masachet Yavamot. Um, yeah, I do think it's interesting. It could have just as easily been there, I think. Yeah, Although, for sure, I'm not bothered but... by it being here. No, no, no. But it's just interesting how this stuff sort of gets organized. You know what I mean? I do. I yeah. do think these questions are interesting. You know, for uh, another round of Dafyomi, for our you know, fourth or fifth round, we should pay attention even, you know, pay only attention to the structuring of each daf as compared to other masachot and so on. Meaning, I'm not rushing to do this, but I think it's a really important task. Well, that's our daf discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this daf on our Talking Time on Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 